Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined with our left-leaning panelist, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes, and our conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant, Alicia Preston. I'm coming at you right up the middle, more or less. I I guess I, I lean slightly to the left. I have a back injury going right now, so that's actually a good description of what's happening to my entire body. I lean very slightly to the left. Speaking of things leaning to the left, that is not what is happening in our current campaign climate. We are getting more polling coming in. It's 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 sort of a barrage of polling. It feels like a meteor shower of polling. And uh, if you're a Democrat, it's it's not great. It's not great. If you're a Republican, you've got a huge smile on your face. Alicia, cue Alicia. Um, Alicia, let's start with you. Polling is in the overall midterm environment seems to be going your way. Are you tap dancing? Are you taking it to the bank or you're still cautious? Oh, I'm definitely still cautious. Look, with polling, and I've said this before, polling is so difficult to judge nowadays. People don't tell the truth. You're using cell phones, not landlines. There's a mixture of there and there. And it's really hard to gauge um, the answers based on who's going to come out and vote. But what you can take from them is the trend, right? Where are they trending? And all these polls are trending to the benefit of Republicans. In some cases, to my surprise, there are a few districts that I didn't think would get even as close as they're getting um, for congressional and U.S. Senate races. So as a Republican, I'm cautiously optimistic um, and a little conflicted because I want the good Republicans, a majority of which are running to win. And I want the crazies not to. Because I think that's bad for the country. So I'm a little conflicted on a few of these seats. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I think you would be exceptional in a reboot of The Wizard of Oz, where you play Glinda the Good Witch and you ask all the Republicans, are you a good witch or a bad witch? The answer <laughs> is, by and large, a bad witch. I, I, I'm sorry. I hate to I say, say it. by and large, good witch. But yeah. the bad witches, I'd like to stay home. <laughs> oh, gosh. Remember when Donald Trump was talking about a witch hunt? And it's like, wow, you know, for a witch hunt, we found a lot of witches. I saw a statistic that Donald Trump's close allies have now accrued a total of 30 years in prison with the added four months that we got from Steve Bannon last week. I mean, say what you will about the two political parties. And we say lots of things. Oh, the Obama cabinet did not accrue that much time in prison. I'm going to go with zero, zero time in prison. Um, But, you know, look, Republicans are winning on that metric, at least that metric. Paul, um, you pointed out before we got on the air that the real pivot points for control of the U.S. Senate seem to be tightening as well, with the exception of in New Hampshire. What are you seeing? Well, I'm not sure it's an exception in New Hampshire, at least reading the um, right-leaning wacko uh, bulletins from uh, New Hampshire uh, Republicans. Um, they claim that Bolduc, uh in one poll is within 0.6% of Maggie Hassan, the incumbent Democrat, former governor of New Hampshire. Uh, they claim um, there's another poll out that w- which claims to have Bolduc two points behind. Um, that's pretty interesting um, and totally unbelievable. Maggie Hassan is going to win this race. Bolduc is not going to win this race. Uh, Independents will not um, choose the R side of the cult 
uh, elections in in at least in New Hampshire. And and you know just a, a brief answer about Goodwitch Badwitch is frankly people uh, if there's an R they are part of the cult and um, they could even be what Alicia calls a good R. But any R is part of the cult. Alicia has been the way it works. No, 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 no. We've we've saved we've saved Alicia. She's she's, she's, she's trying. I mean, I I really admire Alicia's attempts to separate um, uh, some Republicans from the body of the cult, which has been programmed. I mean, but it, it's it's in vain. Any any R these days is 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 part part of the effort. So in New Hampshire. I'm not uh, as Alicia said, I don't believe those polls. I think I, I want I want to statistically differ with you for one second. I, I there's no good defining line for good witch and bad witch, right? But could we could we try to come up with one here? Recent and continued polling over the last two years, it's been pretty consistent, has shown that about two-thirds of Republicans believe the big lie. Two-thirds believe that Joe Biden was not legitimately elected as president. Could we make the dividing line? There could we say that you are savable, um, potentially not a bad witch, if you at least say yes. Of course, the big lie is total hogwash. Is that is that a good dividing line? I do a different dividing line because again, you're talking about polling and who answers and what they say. If you want to look at New Hampshire, which we're talking about in all three federal races, the Trump candidate won with a third of the vote. That is two thirds of Republicans voted against the Trump aligned candidate. That to me is a far more accurate poll than the one that you're citing. Mm, That's interesting. It does connect to one point that I'd like to make now, because we could be in a situation where Paul's wrong. Paul's rarely wrong, but in this case, he might be. What if we end up with Senator Don Baldock? Well, you might recall we talked on this show about my article saying Democrats were right to meddle in these Republican primaries. And it wasn't because it gave them an advantage in winning, which it seems to have. It was because I don't think that there's ultimately a difference between Don Baldock and Chuck Morse, not on the things that really count and really matter. I think the relatively moderate Republican in that primary would have voted exactly the same way that a Senator Don Baldock would, would knuckle under to the big lie the exact same way that Don Baldock evidently would or will should he become elected. And I think that's true across the board. Why am I telling you this? Because a lot of these races, there were 13 where where Democrats meddled, these races could ultimately turn against them in the next two weeks. And if that happens, I'm not backing down off of my article. I continue to say Republicans, there's just not that much difference. And to me, the dividing line, good witch, bad witch is, would you actually do something different when it comes to the Donald Trump MAGA fantasy that's going to take us right into a second civil war? So I I have a question. Let me ask you educated, smart strategist type linear thinkers a question. And it's about Don Baldock and the general trend of the Republican Party. So so during the primary, um, the brigadier general was a forthright big lie uh, believer. I mean, he was he was all in with Donald Trump. Then right after the primary, we heard the sound of the rubber flip flops. 
And he said, well, not really. Um, I don't think there was fraud. And then he went back and now he is, as they say, a fraudster, a little deuce coop fraudster. And my question is this. You've got thinking about Herschel Walker um, and uh, Donald Trump and the amorality, immorality, uh, the kinds of things that used to be death to a candidate, which no longer are. Apparently, you can get away with anything immoral and still be a viable candidate. So is there a line between, oh, you can do anything you want, except you can't flip flop? Is flip flopping still death to a candidate? It, no. it isn't and it never was. It never was. I agree. Every candidate runs hard to win their primary and then switches their position to win a general election. It's always happened. It always will. It's a little more forefront nowadays because we see it splashed on social media constantly. The one thing I want to say about Don Bolduc is this, though. I don't support the big lie. I think he strategically handled the flip flop very poorly. Um, but. What can't be lost is that this man is actually a hero. And while he's not my favorite candidate, he's not who I supported in the primary. When you've got five bronze stars and you've done what this man did in his life in service to his country, he does deserve a level of respect. And it's not in the same category. He's not in the same category as a Herschel Walker or, you know, or Dr. Oz, um, despite the fact that some of his touted policies may be similar. I think he earns a different level of respect. Look, thank you for your service. General Bolduc, I mean that with no sarcasm whatsoever. I just think that in my mind, adopting the big lie is disqualifying. Buying into the Trump cult is disqualifying. And you may have performed heroic service <coughs> for our country. Excuse me. <clears throat> you may have performed heroic service for our country. I'm getting all choked up about it this. Chokes, it chokes him <laughs> up to just say those words. It's heroic but what chokes service. me up even more is to then to then denigrate that that clear level of patriotism by kind of shilling yourself out for for such a blatant political purpose and saying, "Yeah, I'm willing to buy into this insanity." It reminds me a little bit of Laura Logan. Do you remember when she was on 60 Minutes and she was a highly respected journalist? And then she got banned from Newsmax last week. You know how hard it is to get banned from Newsmax? Do you know how crazy it would be like saying, no, 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 we won't publish your article in the Weekly World News because we would never speculate about Bigfoot that way. She was banned from Newsmax for saying on the air that Democrats want People to eat crickets and they dine on the blood of your children. She went full QAnon on the air. And my point about Don Bolduc, Paul's just learning this. <laughs> yeah. Well, for our she listeners, did. Out there, yes. I, she I, did really? Really? Yeah, she did. She oh, did yes. That. And yes. I used to I used to respect her. She she used to be and look, I have you ever Don tried Bolduc's cricket? Children. Have you ever tried a cricket? Not, I've had a chocolate coated cricket in, in many places around the world. They they are served deep fried and there's an enormous amount of protein. And people say they taste is, a little bit this like is why. chicken. 
this is why Democrats are losing because you sound cricket curious right I'm now. A, You're you like sound apolo- oh, I have tasted I'm, I'm, a cricket. It was I'm a cricket. Apolo- I'm a cricket so apologist. I'm a I, I'm a I'm I'm all in with crickets. The blood of the blood of your children, not so much. But crickets, you know, I don't know. That's wait. I thought that was the blood of the children thing. Doesn't that have to do with some pizza shop in D.C. or something? Or my yes, it's also part of the QAnon. Yes, yes, it's Pizza Gate. Pizza Gate. And this is my point. This is my point. I respect Don Baltic for his service. But once you go to that level of conspiracy. Well, you can't conflate the big lie as wrong as it is with. Is it crazier than the blood of children? It's the same thing. They've It's, It's not as crazy as drinking the blood of children because they're supposed to get some special enzyme to keep them young or something. I think it is. It's really bad Twilight Zone. You know, and so is the big lie. By the way, Paul, back to Paul's thing. Alicia, you're 100 percent right. Paul, do you remember the sainted Tom King, one of the best consultants you ever employed? Of course. For all the other consultants out there who may be listening to the show, we've had a bunch of them on the show. We're about to have one of the top one of the top Democratic strategists in the world. Doug Thornell is coming onto the show. You'll hear it in this podcast feed on Thursday. So subscribe to Beyond Politics. Um, all right, everyone plug your ears. If you're a Democrat consultant, Tom King's still my favorite. Um, Tom King used to say flip flopping doesn't matter. Voters don't care if you flip flop as long as you flop to the right position in their minds. And Don Bolduc is blowing with the wind like John Kerry windsurfing. Um, anything else we should do on on the midterms? I just want to say Paul made a note that he thinks independents are going to come out and they're going to vote Democrat. I disagree. I think they're going to break Republican. The New York Times, people can look it up, did a really fascinating analysis piece a few days ago on just the, on the independent women and where will they go. And their analysis even says they're going to break Republican. And I think that's true. And I think it's true because as we sit here today talking about the big lie and conspiracy theories and other things, uh, independent women are talking about inflation. And I, you guys have mocked me for months and I keep saying the exact same thing, but I maintain that will be where the independents break and why. We don't mock you, Alicia, we don't mock you. And Democrats at their peril mock anybody who brings up the price of bread and eggs, which are which have which have, you know, groceries, groceries of store have so have soared for lots of reasons, none of which, of course, are related to Democrats. Um, But but that said, the party in power gets punished uh, often when the people feel bad about the economy whether or not it's true or not, whether or not it's rational or not, voters vote on how how they feel. We get we get that and we get the pain at the pump and the pain at the cash register. Um, Democrats would do well in the last two weeks to um, adopt uh, the the Bill Clinton approach. I feel your pain and um, and and do a little more. I feel your pain Um uh, and that that might that might help in in the last two weeks, although it may already be baked in. It may be over. And let's just say Republicans are always better than Democrats on messaging. I cannot think of anybody on the Democratic side who was better at messaging than Republicans, except maybe Obama only because it was so out of the box to use the four letter word hope as as a centerpiece for a campaign when we know that fear and loathing, which the Republicans specialize in, is so much more powerful than love and hope. But that being said, Democrats 
at the moment, two weeks away from the midterms, are kind of running in a variety of directions, none of which seem all that cohesive to me. Except I'm not on, that worried about cohesion. Except, I'm not worried about cohesion. On abortion. Yeah, yeah. But Matt, wait a second. You've got to you. You have to admit uh, you, you and I worked on this for years. You yeah, and I never I never believed that it was a unicorn to, hunt. Like, no, oh, no, we're going to have one cohesive message that will suddenly do it for Democrats. No, no, no. Never, no never but the I, wait, wait, wait. The idea that Republicans know how to reinforce their message up and down the ballot with a with a with a cohesion that means that everywhere you turn, you're hearing the same thing from the Republicans and they've had the drumbeat of it's inflation, it's crime, it's inflation, it's crime. And that's all they've said. And with an electorate that uh, has um, social media and information fatigue and a world in chaos, that's pretty simple message. And and that may be the answer for what happens in the midterms, how anybody can vote Republican in light of who the Republicans are is beyond me. But that's my failing as a lefty. But I think what this points to is what what you're talking about is a structural problem. And the reason that I didn't buy that there was a cohesive message for Democrats is that the structure of the two parties is fundamentally different. What they want to achieve is fundamentally different. Democrats are fundamentally constructive. What I mean by that is they want to use government to do things. Republicans are fundamentally destructive. They want to criticize, say, stop, say things have gone too far. That's sort of the DNA of the two parties. Structurally, the Republican argument is much easier. As you just said, Paul, it's always going to be easier. It's always going to be like holding the serve in tennis to be able to go into a campaign and say, do you like fill in the blank? No. Well, then express your anger by voting for Republicans and voting against those Democrats who somehow are associated with fill in the blank, immigration, crime, high prices. And that's why I agree with Alicia. I think independents are going to break for Republicans because they have the structural upper hand. They hold serve on those issues. What worries me in a long term sense, and maybe, maybe, Paul, where I come back 360 to your point is Democrats have fallen into the trap of trying to play Republicans game and they're not going to be as good at it. It's not because Republicans are fundamentally better at message. Democrats are fond of saying that, oh, Republicans really know how to do message. They're they're so great at it. We're so bad at it. Well, no, they're better because they have an easier hand to play. If you're dealt, I'm going to switch sports metaphors here. If you're dealt pocket aces, you're going to win more hands, not all the time, but you're going to win more hands because it's fundamentally an easier political play to make. What Democrats have responded with in this cycle is, okay, you're going to demagogue crime. (laughs) We're going to demagogue abortion. And we're going to put our abortion up against your crime and we'll see who wins. And for a while over the summer, the most salient set of issues that were in the news were abortion and Trump and Republican craziness. When those issues were in the news, advantage Democrats, when those issues receded from the news and people started focusing once again on inflation and Republican messaging on crime and immigration began to take hold, advantage Republicans. 
Democrats are not going to win this game unless they have a hands down salient issue like they did in 2018 and again in 2020 in the form of Donald Trump, which was so obvious and so much on the minds of voters that they could get into this kind of tit for tat. Well, you think you're angry about this. Wait till you hear about that kind of game with Republicans. They can win that game when they have the upper hand. But most of the time, the advantage is going to be on the Republican side. That's why I don't think it's about finding a coherent, cohesive central message for Democrats. It's about changing the game so we're not constantly playing the Republicans game, which very much right now in 2022 is advantage Republicans. I'm going to try and connect that to another major happening in the news last week, which was the churn going on across the pond in the UK over the British prime ministership. We saw that Liz Truss had to step down in a record short amount of time because essentially what happened was, well, I I don't want to get into the specifics. People, I don't want to, I don't want to belabor them, but I, I, to me, and Alicia, I'm going to put this to you and I'm going to put it to you in a totally slanted, unfair way. You can call me out on it. You ready? Ready. I thought that this was an illustration of conservatives catching the car because essentially what Liz Trust did was she came into office and tried to put in an economic program right out of Reagan Thatcherism out of the 1980s, which was completely insane from an economic standpoint. The markets exploded. Everyone said, you're a maniac. What are you doing? You're living out some kind of a conservative economic fantasy, and it all unraveled from there. I feel like I'm seeing this more and more. Now, now, Alicia, you are an actual conservative. You're an ideological conservative. That's that's where you come from. You're not just a Republican. And we've talked a little bit on this show, but do you, do you see this about this? Do you, do, do you see this the same way I do that what we're seeing here, both in the UK and in the US, is a mismatch between kind of conserve what, what conservatives are supposed to stand for and kind of the bankruptcy of new ideas coming out of the conservative party that's meant to kind of pursue those conservative ideas. I think it's more simple than that. I think it's people in power, and we've got them in the United States too, who simply don't know how things work and make decisions that can fundamentally blow things up. I mean, we see it here with a, a small portion, but it's about 20% now of Republicans who don't want to give any money to Ukraine because they're looking at one specific issue, not what general impact that will have on the entire globe, right? And then we look at the UK. She came out and made all these cuts for wealthy people and all these changes to the economic system overnight. The markets tanked and the people revolted because what she didn't understand is how their financial system works and the ramifications of her doing this. There's something as simple as apparently mortgages. I just learned this because of the situation. Mortgages are done very differently in the UK than they are in the United States, and they're flexible and they're based on markets after about five years. So if the markets tank and things change, your mortgage can literally go up 30 percent overnight. They're just done differently. And so the bank tries to equate things. So she blew up the financial system in one day, not because of 
conservatism because of ignorance of not understanding the ramifications of her actions would be far greater than just a tax cut for the wealthy. And I think that's a problem we have. We have to start electing people. And mind you, I don't tell other countries how to run their country, but the financial system of the UK has global impact on the global economy and financial system. So it matters. Um, I, I think we need to start electing people everywhere that know what the heck they're doing before they do it. Right. I, I mean, I think what you're saying is we can't govern in sound bites. And right. my my perspective on it is this is something that afflicts both liberal and conservative political parties in both the UK and the US. It just, to me, afflicts the Republican Party in the US a lot more. They're, they seem to be out of rational policy ideas, and they're mostly trying to govern in sound bites. Look no further than build the wall, right? Like it's a totally irrational policy that Donald Trump got elected and actually tried to do and was sort of a disaster. That's my perspective. I, I, this is too much of a layup for you, Paul. I mean, y- you clearly agree, right? You know, I really I, I I, I'm nostalgic about Ronald Reagan. I really am. I mean, I'm, I, I'd like to go back there and think about, you know, the arguments over trickle down economics versus versus January 6th insurrection. I'd probably take trickle down e- economics. And I think Liz Trust deserves credit for trying to bring Britain back to 1981. And uh, she was channeling her inner her inner Ronald Reagan. What's more interesting to me is uh, that um, the new British prime minister is um, whose name is Rishi Sunak um, is a Hindu of African Indian descent. His parents emigrated to Britain in the 1960s. Um, His father, uh, if I recall correctly, is Kenyan. Um, and, And I think it's fascinating that the British have now chosen as their uh, prime minister, a non-white person, um, uh, especially given all the frou in the palace over um, um, uh, Prince Harry's um, marriage to Meghan Markle and what she experienced afterwards. Um, what does that tell us? Maybe it says they're just desperate. Maybe they've gotten past um, uh, the color of uh, the skin to his the credentials of their prime minister. I mean, he he comes in as a near billionaire, if not billionaire, having married the daughter of a huge billionaire. Um, he is, was a Fulbright scholar, an MBA at Stanford. He has homes in Santa Monica and New York, I believe, as well as their newly refurbished castle um, in London. So he's he's a he's a genuine hugely wealthy uh, conservative type hedge fund investment banker guy. So it'll be very interesting. He's promising pain for Britain. That'll be interesting to see how they how they deal with it. And he issued uh, in his um, acceptance speech outside um, uh, 10 Downing Street, mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. And um, it's always interesting when mistakes were made is phrased in the passive voice after he said nice things about Liz Trust, Liz Trust, or should have been trussed up. But Liz Trust, who he said had had was well-intentioned, usually well-intentioned. These are these are good aims to promote growth in the country. And now we will correct those mistakes. 
first of all, I'm so looking forward to the backlash that's going to occur in a few years in the UK. Like we lived through here in the US and the inevitable right. demands for his long form birth certificate. That should be a lot of fun to watch. I, look, th- you know what this makes me think? We should just let Republicans catch the freaking car in this country. I, I'm beginning to see a silver linings. Let's call this blue linings playbook. Maybe it'll be great if Republicans win in the in this midterm and then we we end up with a president i don't know desantis because we will end up every time they catch the car they crash and burn because they have no constructive policy ideas and they're mostly coming up with governing by soundbite this is this is the every time democrats have done well it's because republicans have tried to live out some kind of like neoconservative or libertarian uh, policy fantasy, build the wall. Let's invade Iraq. They're going to greet us as liberators. This will be fantastic. And it crashes on them and Democrats and the rest of the country say, wait a second. I know it sounded bad when prices were high and gas prices were, were a little out of whack and I voted for Republicans, but wow, they're really maniacs. I, I Alicia, I'm rooting for your team now. Well, let me just note that while I disagree with absolutely everything you just said, the more important mention on this program today was Paul's support for Meghan Markle, who I think is the worst thing to ever happen in the royal family. And just because she said someone's a racist doesn't mean it's true. She says it because she is an attention something or other and can't stand having anybody more adored than she and hashtag Team Kate. <laughs> on that on that happy note, let's talk about let's talk about a democratic <laughs> policy overreach. A little bit of a a little bit of a democratic side. I'm not I'm not touching that one. You know what? If you guys behave for the rest of this episode, you can have your dessert. We'll talk about Kanye West at the very end. Okay. okay. All uh, right. Fine. Um, let's let's talk about student loans. So, President Biden announced his executive order several months ago on student loans probably amounts to 400, maybe $500 billion of benefits to people who hold student loans. And we've gone through it on this show before. The news coming into our uh, episode today is that a federal judge has actually put a stay on that program right before it was beginning. It, w- it was set to go into effect shortly. And apparently the, the federal government has received 22 million applications for relief under that program. Um, look, I've been I've been clear that I think this was an overreach. I think it was a mistake. I think it was pandering to uh, part of the Democratic base. Uh, I don't think it's well justified by policy. Paul, uh, am I wrong? Maybe not. But, you know, I mean, it's election season and uh, in election season, presidents get to do something to try to help their party. And, you know, Democrats have been talking about relief on student debt for a long, long time. So Biden threw him a bone. Hey, Dems, I'm progressives. I'm I'm throwing you a bone. Of course, it didn't it it didn't really work because the bone crumbled. Uh, The far left said, "Ah, really not enough. Uh, Come on. There's a half measure. And um, on the other hand, 22 million students whose lives would be made much easier uh, by uh, some debt forgiveness uh, have applied. Students or former students have applied um, for the loan. So 
It was popular among some people and whether it was an election season, you know, boon or not, um, uh, it it would it, it kind of disappeared from the news until a federal judge said not so fast. I mean, I am so opposed to this kind of executive order, and Biden's not the first to do it. Trump used executive orders. Obama used executive orders uh, inappropriately, I'm saying. W. uh, Bush used inappropriate executive orders. It is not the form of our government that you are supposed to be able to do this under an executive order. Now, I disagree with the student loan forgiveness program, even if it passed through Congress. But had it passed through Congress, at least it would be the proper procedure. Now, that being said, President Biden just a few days ago was speaking to a crowd of young people and actually said that it passed through Congress with just a few votes, which isn't true. Some are saying it's because he's older and confused. Others are saying he was straight up lying. Whichever it is, it's not okay to be spreading that message because it is factually inaccurate. That being said, look, I have an 18-year-old. She's a senior in high school. We are doing the college admission process now. And the cost of a higher education is outrageously obscene. I think part of it is the access for anyone to get a full student loan for any degree at any point made colleges realize they can charge whatever they want. You know, I graduated a little less than 30 years ago. My mom was a school teacher. My father was in middle management and they managed to put two kids through college. We're only a year apart out of their own pocket. That is not possible or plausible for 98% of the families in this country right now. So what we should be talking about is what happened with the cost of higher education. I believe people should have access to it. And the cost of education right now is something that is fundamentally you know, wrong and scandalous as far as I'm concerned. First of all, I encourage people to make donations to the GoFundMe that's going to keep Alicia from having to donate blood to put her children through college. Um, We're all rooting for you there, Alicia. And um, I'm only a few years behind you on that. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll take some donations, too. I think you put your finger on the exact problem here, which is. Under current projections, we're going to face the exact same level of student debt in five years. We're going to keep refilling this 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 massive well of debt because President Biden's executive action is only backward looking. We're not dealing with the fundamental problem. I mean, I, to be clear, if you are low income, if you have gone to college and you have been defrauded by, let's say, Trump University, right, or or DeVry or one of these other fly by night for-profit universities, or you have gone into a public service field where you're not going to make back the money you spent on a higher education, but you're benefiting all of us by all means. I think that is a legitimate policy purpose for the government to focus on. I also support the executive order that has taken under both Trump and Biden that allowed forbearance on student loan interest during the pandemic-induced recession, because obviously people were struggling at that time and had no way of of paying back their loans. And so, you know, we shouldn't be pushing people into bankruptcy. But the problem we have overall is that we've allowed our colleges to be U.S. News and World Report listified. 
And we have a very small bottleneck of control by a few elite colleges and universities that are in a market power position. We busted the trusts in this country more than 100 years ago because we determined that monopolistic market power is bad for America. It is not capitalist. It is not in keeping with a free market economy. And it is bad and it abuses people. And that's essentially the situation we've ended up with in higher education. And the solution is not to just ratify these cost increases by having the federal government sweep in and pay for them. It's to actually expand the pool of high quality colleges and universities so that they exercise less market power. That is my economics geek out for the morning. Um, On that note, why don't we move on? I, you know, I, I want to touch for a second, Alicia, you brought up right before the show that there was a spicy debate uh, in between uh, Ron DeSantis and Charlie Crist in Florida. And uh, you, you wanted to hit on it. I, I'm going to argue with with how relevant this is. But but what stood out to you from that? It, it happened last night, right? It happened last night and it was it was spicy. And I find that entertaining. It's good DC, uh, good TV. I know where you're going to go with it. And I'm not sure it's great for democracy because, you know, everybody doubles down on each other and they get nasty to each other. And one's talking about, um, you know, criticizing supporting of transgender uh, surgeries in a child. And another is criticizing tax cuts here and and vaccines. And it, it just it got so into the weeds on how extreme can I make my opponent? Um, it, it was interesting. I mean, I don't think you have to live in Florida to watch that and feel like you just got your entertainment value out of it. I'm not sure you got more than entertainment value out of it. Um, but I do also think it's interesting that that race is so much closer than people really predicted it would be. I will admit that I used to do debate prep for Paul Hodes, uh, among other candidates. And what I used to work with candidates on doing was pivoting, meaning if you're talking about a topic that isn't a winning topic for you, pivot to a topic that is a winning topic. Now, this may be the right thing to do in a debate. It's absolutely terrible for educating voters on issues and having a substantive exchange on things that matter and giving voters in a democracy the opportunity to make a rational choice about what direction they'd like to go in the country. I'm writing an article for Newsweek about this right this very instant. Um, Paul, in that article, I mean, first of all, Sorry to take you down memory lane to uh, debate prep sessions with you, <sighs> were, I'm sure, painful. God. And second of all, you have been among your many other talents. You've been married for like four decades. If you were having an argument, if your wonderful wife said to you, Paul, you didn't take the garbage out and you started yelling, well, yeah, you're a terrible cook. That's essentially <laughs> what we do in debates these days. Would that work? Is that a good idea? It's great idea. You know, uh, there there's some cardboard boxes sitting by the entrance to the garage that need to go out to the recycling. And just this morning, she said, you know, I'm really tired of seeing your cardboard boxes sitting there. You never take them out in a in a timely way to the garage. Do you think you could bring them out? And I said, listen, let's really what what are we having for dinner tonight? You know, I mean, so so I remembering my debate prep, it immediately came to mind what Matt would want me to do in this situation 
situation is not take the cardboard boxes out or even talk about the cardboard boxes. It's a losing I'll issue change, for you, Hodes. I'll, it's losing issue. <laughs> yeah, change, you have to talk about a winning issue. I'm, I'm changing the debate to what are we having for dinner tonight? Now, that's an argument I'm willing I'm willing to have. Actually, I hated debate prep. I hated debate prep more than almost anything connected to my campaign. I would rather more than fundraising. I, I was going to say fundraising. I, I, oh. would, I, I would rather sit in a beige windowless cubicle with a 20 year old handing me sheets of paper with the names of people who used to be my friends on it and making me call them up and beg for money to their answering machines for hour and hour on end rather than sit in a beige windowless cubicle with Matt Robeson and other intelligent people peppering me with what I was doing wrong about the upcoming debate uh, because I never could pivot right and I didn't really under get the issues right and what was I going to be sweating was I going to be wiping my upper lip if I did I'd have a Nixon I mean it was it was awful and all that said I can't tell you that. I mean, I remember coming out of my debates in in both my congressional debates and in my for Blungeon Senate campaign against Kelly Ayotte that uh, I felt like I'd done pretty well. I felt I'd won. And it didn't matter, people. I think and Matt, Matt, I know you believe this in the modern in the modern political era with the cascade of social media and the lack of attention span of the American electorate, at least that's what we think is going on. Who listens to debates? Who listens to any debate but a presidential debate occasionally for a couple of minutes? Maybe Matt Robinson does because no, he has I have, to. I have the answer. You want to know the answer? Committed yeah. partisans. Right. Right. That, Researchers have the studied this. They've studied it. <laughs> Debates persuade no one. They convince absolutely no one of anything. No one learns a thing. They have just become a kabuki theater dance where candidates try to have a viral moment that they can meme like John Fetterman so that they can send it out to raise money on social media or by email. They would save everyone a lot of time and grief if they would just film themselves saying mean things about their opponents and sending those things out directly because there's no other value gain. I want to agree with you 100% in that respect. Um, you know, and like you, I have uh, done debate prep with dozens and dozens of candidates. And, you know, the first question we tackle is what do we need to achieve? Sometimes you need to get a leg up on the opponent, sometimes you whatever. Sometimes the answer is just do no harm. And when that's the first question you're answering and you're gauging your questions, Based on that, clearly it's not there just to get your opinions out. But to your point, I was at a debate the other night and the Democrat and Republican were both asked about school vouchers um, and the fact that only the wealthy can send their high school kids to private school without them. And the Democrat candidate who I have known literally my whole life, and I know this is not what she meant, but she actually said, yes, with wealth comes for more opportunity, more opportunity. So maybe you have to work a little bit harder to get more wealth. Now, that will be used against this person. And she's only 50 for her entire political career if she ever regains one after that statement. And that is the only thing that came out of that debate. Uh, this it what happened was in 2006, George Allen, who 
who many were kind of tabbing as the next Republican hope for president, had his macaca moment where he racially denigrated a tracker at one of his campaign events. Google it. Ever since then, and reinforced by the town hall summer of 2009, where Republicans staged town hall disruptions to try to make it look like there was a groundswell of anger against the health care law. Politicians in both parties have been afraid of interacting with voters or anything where they could be caught online in some kind of a viral video way, like you just described, Alicia. The only final thing I'll say is that when you refer to trying to get a leg up on the opponent, I assume you mean in a dog urination sense, because that's all we do in debates. On that note, you get to choose your final closing lightning round topic. Paul, Alicia, would you rather talk about Clarence Thomas doing a solid for Lindsey Graham and keeping him off the witness stand or Kanye West? You choose. I say Kanye West. Let's do Kanye. What so do you have to say about this mentally ye. ill person? Ye. Oh, he's ye, ye now. Ye. He's ye now. He Is was it ye? once. Is it yay or ye? Or he called himself Jesus once a while ago. I don't know. Anyway, so he's on this been on this anti-Semitic raid for several weeks now. He's been tweeting about her. He's been going on shows. Tucker Carlson took him, although they actually edited out some of the anti-Semitic stuff, but it came to light anyway. And, you know, then he just kept tripling down on his anti-Semitism and tweeted out, I'm going to go DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. And so companies started. (laughs) I don't know what he meant by that, but that's what he said. And I know I'm sitting here, the two other fellows in this program are both Jewish. And so he doesn't like you guys. Just want to let you know. And Feeling is mutual. <laughs> so um, then he's and so companies start dropping him. So he actually then says on another show, because people keep giving him airtime, I can say anti-Semitic things and Adidas can't drop me. Guess what? Adidas has now finally dropped him. And what's interesting about this from a bigger picture is I hate cancel culture. I think it's bad for society. I think it's bad for the First Amendment. I think it's bad for all of that. But one of the reasons I always oppose cancel culture is when someone does something like ye or Kanye or Jesus or whatever he calls himself today, that actually is cancel worthy. It doesn't mean as much anymore because we've canceled people for saying something stupid when they're 15 on Twitter. So when you're so outrageous as this guy who I've never understood the allure of, um, he should be canceled. He should, you know, businesses are you're allowed to be hate monger. You're allowed to be an anti-Semite. And yet people are allowed to respond in kind when you listen. If Tucker Carlson is saying, whoa, 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 that's that's a little too anti-Semitic for me. You've got a problem. And on that delightful note, we're all out of time. For Paul and Alicia, I'm Matt. See you next time.